reading from James. My brothers and sisters, do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes also, sorry, comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please, while to the one who is poor you say, stand there, sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So, faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Hear the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Loving God, may the words that come from my mouth be inspired by your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Friday before last, I got a phone call uh, from a young guy named Aaron. He's currently working as an intern uh, in the Diocesan Youth and Children's Ministry office. And he'd been given... uh, the somewhat thankless task, I think, of ringing around all the parish clergy and finding out some information about each church and specifically the youth and children's ministry um, in each church. He did share with me at the end of the the phone call that it had been a fairly thankless task with not a lot of rewards. Um, Of course, we wouldn't get our interns to do that type of thing in our church, but um, it is an important thing to find out what's going on across our diocese. After the uh, opening pleasantries, he asked if I'd be happy to answer some questions. And, of course, I said, yes, I'm good at thinking on my feet, I think. Um, But his first question really stopped me in my tracks. He asked me, what is unique about your church? I'm pretty sure it didn't take me that long to answer, but it seemed like it did because I had a thousand things running through my head all at once that how do I answer this question? Things like, well, we used to think what was unique is about was our location, but we've solved that or we think we did. Um, if you'd asked me in January 2020, I probably would have given you a completely different answer about what was unique in our church. We're trying to work that out all, all at, at the moment when we're looking at our DNA as a church. 
And I even thought, well, I'm not sure that we actually are unique. I did give him an answer, but I'll come back to that towards the end of my message. This morning, I'm going to spend some time reflecting on our church DNA. This is a sermon that I was actually going to preach on the Sunday closest to our 24th birthday, but our lockdowns messed up our preaching schedule. We had a series on Ephesians we needed to finish, as well as a baptism that we needed to have, um, which was last Sunday. Um, but ironically, the way things have lined up, it seems a perfect day to be talking about DNA when it's Father's Day. I hope that you are at least somewhat aware of the process that we've embarked upon in trying to identify the DNA of our church. We've reflected uh, for a few months now on where we wanted to be or what it was like when we were 24. We've uh, had a number of uh, blogs and reflections written about um, the idea of our DNA and, and being 24. Bishop Stephen Hale was with us in July uh, and led us on a whole morning of conversation about who we are and who we are becoming. The fruits of that conversation will be added to information that we'll collect with the National Church Life Survey that will be conducted in a month's time or so. I'm personally hoping, hoping that the final outcome will be a clear statement of what is unique about our church. But before we get to that point, I did want to spend some time speaking into the process. And even though I hadn't originally thought that I would use uh, the letter from James as a catalyst, I'm so glad that this particular reading has been set down for today. The letter of James is one of my favourite books of the Bible to explore in a Bible study format. There's so much to wrestle with. James is actually in the lectionary for a few more weeks, so this might not be the last time we hear from James in the foreseeable future. But if I asked you to offer your constructive criticism about our church, I wonder how long before you started to think about me, Reverend Stuart Perry, your senior minister, rector. You might then start to think about how things were pre-COVID when our in-person attendance was around 300 on an average Sunday and this 9.30 service was bustling with children, young families and young people. You might move to think about the ministry of the other clergy in our parish, Elroy and Mary Ann, memories of some of our priests um, of time gone by, of Bruce and Tom who have since passed, or other rectors like Malcolm, Ross or Monty might come to mind. You might start to evaluate on the other members of our ministry team, Bowen, Dale, Andrea and Anne, our interns, past and present, you could start to think about the key people in our church, those who run our groups, our Bible studies, the musicians, those who coordinate programs, those who serve in our op shops, 
the welcomers, the readers, the liturgical assistants. But I wonder at what point in this exercise of constructive criticism would you start to think about yourself? I wonder if that would even cross your mind. One thing that I love about reading and reflecting on James is that it always confronts me about myself. But it does so in relationship with God and with those around me, my community and the wider world. We can't start talking about the DNA of a church without its members really wrestling with how they see themselves, how God sees them, how they see others within the church, how they are seen by others, how they see those who are not members, and how they are seen by those who are not members. You have to start with you, and I have to start with me. I am no more or less important than you are. The person beside you, in front or behind you, the person watching online or watching later this week is no more or less important. Part of James' plea that there is no partiality or no favouritism within the church is not to overvalue or undervalue any person. If I'm honest, I think our church overvalues those who are paid to minister in our church. From what I can discern, this has been a feature from early in the establishment of this church. And it's a trait that I'm praying fervently that we can reframe and correct. We are so blessed to have and have had skilled, gifted people to lead us and serve with us. But we walk a dangerous line into tipping over into a culture where people minister to us for us and we just receive that ministry. It's a worldly culture called consumerism. James' direction to the early churches for which he's writing is not to be shaped by the world and the culture of the world and how the world sees you, but to be shaped by God's character and how God sees you. One of my recurring prayers for each of you as members of our church is that you might see yourself as God sees you. And I get incredibly humbled by the position that I'm gifted to get glimpses of that over and over again, week in and week out. But how do you get to see yourself as God sees you? Well, reading the book of James and any other part of the Bible, uh, for that matter, is a great place to start. I've got lots of notepads that I work with. I'm, unfortunately, that's how my, my brain works. I have to write things down and I've got to go from notepad to notepad and depending on what's available for me at the time, 
Um, I've probably got about five or six notepads currently going at the moment. On one of them, sitting on my desk, um, is a note that I've written that I wrote down a couple of months ago after listening to a podcast. Um, and, and I wrote the words down with the thought, maybe I can construct those words into a song. I haven't got there yet. Maybe I will one day. But the words um, came to um, um, songwriter and worship leader Matt Redman. And I'm not sure I got them completely right, wrong, but this is what I wrote down on my notepad. Our purpose is to know him, to love him, to serve him in the world. These words succinctly summarise today's passage from James, but also give clear building blocks for our personal DNA as believers, which should knit together with the DNA of other believers to form the DNA of a church. In our exercise of constructive criticism, what could we gain by reflecting on what are we really doing to get to know Jesus? To stay active in our knowledge of Jesus. It's one thing to have met someone some time ago in some point of history. It's one thing to have had a close relationship with them for a period of time. It's a whole nother thing to continue a relationship of knowing and being known. Do you know Jesus? How are we showing our love for Jesus? Is our worship causing us to fall to our knees in humility? Or are we finding ourselves more and more frustrated or outraged at what we're being denied or restricted from? If we find ourselves more in the latter case being frustrated and outraged, then we might actually be loving what we expect from the world rather than loving Jesus. How do you show you love Jesus? And what are we really doing to serve Jesus? Are we just waiting to be served? Because we're tired and the world's tough? Are we really loving and serving our neighbour the way we are wanting to be loved and served? Do you actually serve Jesus in the world? We can try and reduce faith to a series of statements that people profess to believe. But for James, faith is what is at work and should be seen to be at work in a person's life. People act on the basis of what they believe to be true. So if people say one thing and do something else, James would say that their actual faith underlies their actions. People must believe in something if they are to act at all. 
question is whether the faith that actually shapes our lives is a faith in Jesus Christ or something different. James calls us back to a central teaching. He calls the royal law. Love your neighbour as yourself. This is not new. James isn't the first person to reveal this to us. It's throughout the Old Testament. It's in the Gospels. It's in the letters of Paul. They all say similar or the same thing. But what characterises James' use of this commandment is its practical application to our everyday ordinary life. If you say that you love your neighbour, then live like you do. If faith is reduced to saying a few words like, I believe, then the expression of faith can be reduced to a few words like telling somebody who's a refugee from Afghanistan, a homeless person, somebody who is a victim of domestic violence, to hope you're okay, have a nice day. Or thinking that having a sponsor child absolves us from any other care for the poor. In James's world, showing favoritism to the rich could elevate your social status. James speaks against seeking first our own welfare. Also in James's world, there was a correlation between blessing, favor and wealth. Jesus taught powerfully against that. By showing your favoritism, you are really just showing what you believe in. The things that benefit ourselves. There are thousands of verses in the Bible that deal with the poor and social injustice. If the church is not standing with and for the poor and standing with and for social justice, then we don't stand where God is. If we find motivation in our own self-advancement, whether that be obvious and deliberate neglect of others, or more subtly through resisting change because it will make us uncomfortable, or complaining about others not pulling their weight, or things being different, not being able to have the same freedoms that we used to have, being inconvenienced, or ensuring that our preferences are maintained in and throughout church life, then what we are motivated by is nothing more or nothing less than ourselves. You might be wondering how I answered Aaron. What do I think is unique about our church? I said, we are brave. We are less afraid of change than most other churches that I know, particularly Anglican churches. And we aren't afraid to try new things, even if they don't always work. This is a part of our DNA that I hope will always be present. But I wonder if we are brave enough to honestly wrestle with whether we are living into our purpose, whether this is in fact part of our personal DNA which is being outworked in the wider church and community. 
the calling of our Creator through our Saviour, Jesus Christ, to know Him, to love Him, and to serve Him in the world. When people look at and speak of our church, do they see depth? Do they see substance? Or we are, are we just like all the other things in the world, more concerned about our comfort and the preferred way that we like to do things? Do we really love our neighbours in a way that is noticeably different from our local service club or a sporting organisation? Do we pretend we always get it right? Or are we bravely honest enough to show that we often get it wrong and rely dependently on the Holy Spirit to restore us, to reposition us, and to work anew in and through us despite our brokenness and our failures. As we wrestle with these things, I have no doubt our DNA will clearly emerge, and I will be very surprised if it doesn't look and sound something like to know him, to love him, and to serve him in the world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us the greatest gift in Jesus Christ, the ongoing gift of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Challenge us to our very core, to find you at our centre. And may our outworking of our relationship with you have a powerful influence, not just in our lives, not just in the lives of our church community and our families, but in the world. May they know that we are Christians by our love. Amen.